Slate Plus members, it is survey time again, which means it's your chance to tell us what you think about Slate Plus and about Slate. It'll only take a few minutes, and you can find it at slate.com slash survey. Again, that's slate.com slash survey. Hi, and welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the U.S. Supreme Court, the law, and the rule of law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover some of those things for Slate. And here at Amicus, we hope that your cup runneth over this Thanksgiving if you celebrate. We're taking a little break this week, but we wanted to take the opportunity to bring you an episode of a podcast we are pretty sure will be of interest. The New Yorker's political scene features conversations with Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos every Friday. And we wanted to share this recent episode about something that we've been thinking about a whole lot here on Amicus, which is the possibility of a second Trump term and what it would mean for you, for me, and for American democracy. Welcome to The Political Scene from The New Yorker, a weekly discussion about the big questions in American politics. I'm Evan Osnos, and I am joined as ever by my colleagues, Jane Mayer and Susan Glasser. And good morning to you guys. Hey, Evan. Back when Donald Trump was in office, it was common to hear around Washington that the U.S. could survive one term of President Trump, but not two. Well, over the last few weeks, we're starting to get a much clearer picture of what a second Trump term might actually look like. And I have to tell you, the details are breathtaking. Some of these plans are coming from organizations that are not officially linked to the Trump campaign. Other clues are coming actually from Trump himself. We pledge to you that we will root out the communists, Marxists, fascists, and the radical left thugs that live like vermin within the confines of our country. So this week, we wanted to take a deep look at the very real possibility of a second Trump term. If you weren't paying attention to this stuff before, we are now at the point where the details are inescapable and need to be considered. What would Trump do if he got back into the Oval Office? How would a second Trump administration be different from the first? And would America's democratic institutions survive? There has been a lot of reporting, guys, over the last few weeks on this subject. It's sort of tumbling into view, and I think people may not have consumed or really processed what we're learning. One of the elements of this that's important has the title Project 2025. We're going to get into the details. But before we do, Susan Jane, I I want to get your sense of what has surprised you most about what we're learning about what they have in mind. Susan, what do you think? Well, look, first of all, I think it's very important to say, especially when it is concerning Donald Trump, what's old is new again. And that's very important because we're not talking about some radically different Donald Trump. And if you really want to know what his agenda for a second term is, look more carefully at the unfinished business the radical Hmm. and extreme unfinished business of a Trump first term. He hasn't given up on things like building his wall, withdrawing from NATO, withdrawing from South Korea, using the Justice Department to go after uh, his political enemies. Those are all things that he tried to do, wanted to do in his first term, and was stymied in some ways from doing. So, again, what's old is new. There are, however— I think, some important differences. The Trump of 2024 campaign is not 
the Donald Trump of 2016. Mm. He's got eight years worth of grievances. He's got 91 felony charges against him. And there are two words that I would say really underscore the difference this time and why Trump in 2024 is arguably a much bigger threat in many ways than he was even eight years ago. The two words are retribution and termination. Mm. And Donald Trump has used the word retribution as essentially the campaign ideology. He's not running to accomplish this or that uh, policy goal, right? He's not talking about health care. He's talking about a personal agenda of using the United States government from the perch of the presidency to enact retribution and revenge on his enemies. And he says it. He says, I am your retribution right. for the public. But what he Jane, really what you, means is himself. And for himself. And, and Jan, what do you? What has jumped out? You, I have to say, you've been sort of bird-dogging this issue. Um, you, you've brought it up a number of times to <laughs> both of us. And what is it that has stunned you and has made well, you focused okay, on so this? Well, okay, so I, I, I agree. To, I think Susan's absolutely right. We saw the intent in the end of the last term. What we're looking at now is the means, mm. which is being drawn up by his most loyal followers in Washington. And there's a cadre of them that are are basically a kind of a shadow cabinet in waiting on Capitol Hill. And they exist in nonprofit organizations that are mostly tax-deductible organizations that are kind of the equivalent of the soft power of the conservative movement up on on Capitol Hill. So you've got the Heritage Foundation, you've got the uh, Center for American Renewal, which is part of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Um, They're buying up real estate up on the Hill, they're expanding, and they're laying plans, and they are writing blueprints. And one of them is over 900 pages, this project 2025 coming out of the Heritage Foundation. It's an analog in some ways to something that happened early on in the um, in the Reagan administration, where they drew up something called a mandate for leadership to try mm. to you know turn Reaganism into governing philosophy um, and on the ground. And that's what they're trying to do with MAGA. What surprised me most? I mean, I don't know if it's a surprise, but what terrifies me most maybe is what the plans are for the Justice Department yeah. because there's nothing like having a prosecutor come after you. Even if there are no grounds for, for a prosecution, just fighting it off, defending, can bankrupt, can bankrupt people. You. And what is it that they're saying they're going to do exactly with the Justice Department? Well, they're talking about putting in people who are completely loyal to Trump as opposed to having an independent Justice Department that serves the idea of rule of law. They're talking also about they're cutting the FBI's budget by 25% to get rid of its ability to investigate someone. They're talking about putting in a solicitor general who argues in front of the Supreme Court after coordinating with the president on what he wants to have said, it's and it it it's a it's a sort of a recipe for a police state. And I do think these specifics are really important for us to lay out. That part of our function is to be able to say to people, "Look, I know that people have not read every story, but these details are astonishing." Susan, go ahead. Yeah. Right, but it's very important to point out that the real astonishing thing is Donald Trump himself. Okay, Donald Trump on some level is a highly transactional, opportunistic guy. He's not actually an ideologue, except to the extent that. I, his ideology is his himself and his agenda of personal revenge really matters here. But I, I would do want to caution people. Donald Trump is not reading any think tank reports. He doesn't really care what people tell him. Uh, and in fact, his agenda of using the Justice Department was one that he had. I can go down the list. It's starting back in 2016 when he wanted to lock up Hillary Clinton. In fact, people may have forgotten, but the attorney general 
who was a very radical attorney general who had many of the same uh, goals when it came to dramatically expanding executive power and the like, Bill Barr, he broke with Donald Trump. And it wasn't even over the election and January 6th. That happened later. By the fall of 2020, Bill Barr broke with Trump over using the Justice Department to prosecute Joe Biden and to to go after his enemies. So this is the the threat to American democracy. And I really want to underscore this. And having, you know, studied and, and written a book on Trump's term in office, what I can say is Trump himself is the threat to American democracy. And in particular, to Jane's point, he has the natural uh, inclinations and goals of an anti democratic authoritarian leader. He himself wants to impose a police state. Now, where all of these plans are very significant is who's surrounding Donald Trump. He's highly he's highly transactional. So that means if he needs your support for something, he he will adopt your agenda as he adopted the agenda of the pro-life movement uh, because they were the key kind of shock troops of the Republican Party. But also because his takeaway from the first term in office was I don't have the right people surrounding me. I don't have radical enough people. And these are the most radical people from the first term. These are the ones who are left, who are working with these think tanks, who are developing these plans right now. So let's talk in specific terms. So take, for example, one of the things we've learned about personnel, which is really at the core of this. You know, the old cliche is that policy is personnel, which is true in the end, that you have to get people in there who are willing to do his bidding. One of the reports that's come out is that they are screening for loyalists. Uh, They're trying to get rid of what they call the infidels, people who would not actually do Trump's bidding. Uh, And they're using an AI project from Oracle, uh, which has been contracted for this project, according to some reporting. One of the descriptions of this is that it is a conservative LinkedIn, the idea that they're composing lists of people, they're asking questions. There's a survey going around that asks a whole series of sort of litmus test questions uh, that tries to to screen out people who will defect from Trump at some point. I mean, I would say that that every administration, when it comes in, wants to have loyalists and people who believe in in the movement and the administration that the president represents. But I, I think what makes this more radical in part is also something that it was a plan that was hatched very much at the end of the last Trump administration, which is uh, something called Schedule F. Mm. And what they're talking about is getting rid of people who are independent experts. At, 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 you know, they're, the, the, the sort of beau ideal for them of the absolute enemy is Tony Fauci. Yeah. They, want some, they don't want a scientist who's worrying about the entire country's national health. What they want is someone who's loyal to Trump. If he says ivermectin is the thing— their person will tell the country, take your ivermectin. And uh, you know, one of the related to that, Susan, is the idea that they would also staff the national security and military space with a similar skepticism about independent authority. This one really jumped out at me, that they would review flag officers, general officers to try to assess whether they have, uh, in a sense, loyalty to Donald Trump's uh, ideological project. That 
would be unprecedented. Am I right? Absolutely. And, you know, from from the very beginning, Trump has uh, a, a sort of strong man's natural attraction to uh, what <laughs> in Russia would be called the, the power ministries, uh, an understanding that, you know, he who controls the guys with guns uh, controls things. And, uh, you know, that's where there was so much concern. And there was this really extraordinary backstage confrontation that was happening throughout 2020 uh, uh, between Trump and both the senior uh, civilian and military leadership of the Pentagon, among others, as well as the attorney general and the Justice Department. And a lot of that was about this very question of Trump potentially seeking to use the power ministries for his own political ends, first to, you know, use them as sort of shows of strength in political photo ops during the campaign, and then in in even more menacing of a way, trying and talking about after the 2020 election to use the military as part of his unprecedented effort to overturn the election results. So given that he's already contemplated doing that, given that he's already clashed with people, you've got to assume that this is a very real part of his second term agenda. And it flows directly from his experience in the first term of wanting to do this and being stymied in many ways. So, well, so personnel. How, how ser- I'm just yeah. curious, like uh, from both of you guys, like how seriously do you take the talk of using the Insurrection Act that's a great uh, to question. To call up I mean, the troops, Susan. I, think, I, I mean, and and Evan. I just, you know, is this is this idle talk using well, we it know, in order I mean, to? Okay, guys, Jeffrey Clark all, was the one, of course. We all remember Jeffrey Clark talked about it. That was what came up at the end of the Trump administration when he said, "Look, that's how we would fight back, essentially, against rioters in the streets." So we know the idea exists out there. But that gets to this other question, which is a lot of the things they're talking about is stuff they wanted to do the first time around. So how much could they be stymied by the courts and how much could they be stymied by other antibodies in the system? Correct. So this, uh, of course, now is where we get into the realm of the unknowns, because there's one thing about Donald Trump trying to create a cadre of shock troop loyalists who are willing to do anything. uh, But we still have a Congress in this country. So one big question, of course, is in this thought exercise here of Donald Trump winning a second term, what does the Congress look like? Theoretically, if this were to happen, it, you know, one could imagine that one or both houses of Congress would also be Republican. But how Republican would they go along? Now, Trump has a history. One of the things that he learned to do in his term in office that I found particularly insidious and I think never got sufficient attention was that he essentially sought to make almost irrelevant or moot the Senate's role of advice and consent when it comes to presidential appointees. Essentially, he just looked at it. He said it's too much of a pain. He, he really was never fully challenged by the Republican-controlled Senate. So, for example, the Department of Homeland Security, that's where a lot of his most radical ideas lie because, of course, he sees immigration and building the wall as a key to his political success. Uh, He has a very radical advisor, Stephen Miller, with him in the White House. He tried to do a lot of things. He got a lot of pushback from officials in DHS saying that what he was doing was illegal or unconstitutional. They wouldn't do a lot of it. What did he do? After he fired Kirsten Nielsen, he never, for nearly two remaining years in his administration, he never even bothered to try to appoint a new Senate-confirmed Department of Homeland Security secretary. So 
who the personnel is, that's going yep. to make a big difference. The military is a very large institution. I, I When I was doing interviews for The Divider, I asked a lot of them, like, okay, but is it just you? You know, is it just one chairman of the Joint Chiefs or one defense secretary who's standing up? They unanimously said to me, no, Susan, you don't understand. Right. This is our warrior code. We swear an oath to the Constitution and not to an individual. But it's kind of scary to think we might you know, be testing that. I mean, I think in in talking about this, what's hard is, okay, inside Washington, things like whether there's an acting head of an agency sure. or one that's gone through advice and consent and been confirmed, we understand what that's about, and it makes a big difference to people inside Washington. But, but it probably sounds like mumbo-jumbo outside of Washington, and I think it's worth sort of explaining what is this really about. What is this about? It's 100 years ago, mm-hmm. um, you know, during Woodrow Wilson's presidency, there was an effort to try to clean up corruption in the federal government and stop it from being like Tammany Hall and just a spoils system and to make it a professional civil service that serves the country, not just the boss. Okay, And and that's what we're really talking about. Trump wants to get rid of all of these guardrails that protect the government from becoming a spoils system. Right. But advice and and consent is in the Constitution, Jane. It's not just from 100 years ago. The Senate's role to confirm people is, I think people can understand that. I mean, this is a basic principle. (laughs) I'm not saying it's unimportant. What I'm just saying is that there's there is a high level of alarm inside Washington about things like losing the independence of the agencies, for instance. That's right. What is underlying this also is is this this theory called the unitary executive theory, which really has been bopping around through conservative circles for two decades. But the idea is that the president really runs the executive branch and should have complete control of the agencies underneath it, and so that they don't act independently. Of him. But there is a long tradition of them nonetheless being independent. And and what is at stake here, if you think about it, is if these agencies, instead of furthering the interests of the public, instead further the interests of the president. And and, and what could be, if you kind of take this one step further and sort of try to imagine, well, what does that actually mean? What you're talking about is if you could imagine maybe an FCC that might take into um, consideration when it's handing out licenses mm. to TV stations, whether they're pro-Trump, yep. or maybe an SEC that um, th- that takes a look at whether a business contributed to Trump or not, or things like that, where yep. it, you can corrupt the the federal government. If you don't have these safeguards that have become traditional over the last hundred years, that's what that's the that's the risk. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. This is uh, really the <laughs> the coming out, the coming of age of, uh, you know, a, a very radical legal theory that now is going to have adherence potentially in this Trump second term right in the Oval Office. I would say, again, this question that Evan brought up, the limits. What are the limits? Uh, Congress and the courts will have their say uh, as to how this is uh, implemented. So we don't know what kind of a Congress we're looking at, but they would have to really go along with some of these independent agencies. Of course, they were formed by acts of Congress. And the question is, how much can Donald Trump, if he were to win election again, use the tools 
of the office to dismantle the safeguards of the other branches of government. It's really a scary thing. And I come back to this again and again. Donald Trump, without his enablers, is just an old dude shouting at the television. And so, you <laughs> right. know, it, it's really it's it, it's it's absolutely important to look at these plans for that reason. Uh, I think that he has the natural instincts to not want any independence. And, you know, that is where it's scary. Jane, you made the point earlier in this conversation, an important point. Every administration wants loyalists. Uh, you know, they're certainly uh, backstage, uh, you know, the the supporters of Elizabeth Warren in the Biden administration who want to make sure that her views are represented at the Treasury Department. I think back to George W. Bush. Remember, after the invasion of Iraq, literally Heritage Foundation, the same group, what were they doing? They were vetting people to uh, for their political loyalty to the Republican Party and sending them yeah, but I think de- degree matters. I remember talking to some of those people, and we are talking about a whole different That's world right. today. All right, one sec. Right. We're going to come back in just a minute, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how Donald Trump himself has changed, and we're also going to talk about some of the institutions that are actually playing a role here. We'll be back in just a second. Hey, listeners, the holiday season is upon us, and the Slate Shop is the perfect place to take the guesswork out of your gift list. Browse our selection of hand-poured candles, classy cocktail kits, stunning stationery, expertly crafted pasta makers, and everything in between. We even have official merch for the Slate fans in your life. From November 24th to 27th, that's Black Friday through Cyber Monday, we are offering 30% off all items in the store. Get your gift sets, stocking stuffers, white elephant gifts, and a treat for yourself while you're at it by going to slate.com slash shop. That's slate.com slash shop and happy shopping. All right, let's take a look at Trump's own language. I think, guys, there is a theme that some of us hear and talk about in Washington, too, which is the idea that if you don't linger on his words, if you're not actually listening to what he's saying these days, that it almost sanitizes him because the things that are coming out of his mouth are wild. Do you think that's a problem? Do you think that because we sort of, you know, assume we already know it's, you know, Trump's Trump and so on, that we actually avoid giving people the full picture, Jane? Yeah, I mean, I think that what's happened is that there's people have normalized it. Oh, that, you know, and kind of dismiss it. And at the same time, you obviously can't ignore him. So he he's a real dilemma for the press. I mean, I think when he started talking about vermin, as he did recently in the way that he defined his enemies, yeah, that broke through. It, yeah. it, it had such echoes of horrors from you know World War II and Hitler and Mussolini that I think it was unavoidable that people had to cover that. Susan, how does he sound different to you now than you know when you were talking to him a couple years ago? Well, first of all, I I do I come back to this theme. Uh, you know, Donald Trump has sort of had this ability to overwhelm us with his BS and overwhelm us with his sort of shocks and and horrors. And so we tend to forget anything that's not in our immediate uh, uh, sort of center of attention. I wrote a whole column in The New Yorker years ago uh, about Donald Trump's use of the dehumanizing language of Hitler and Stalin. And, you know, he was in incumbent president sitting in the Oval Office talking about his enemies as human scum, which is literally the only other citations I could find for the use of human scum by a sitting uh, leader, world leader were 
people like Kim Jong-un or reaching back in time uh, to Stalin. He speaks in the language of tyranny. It's shocking, but not new. What's new, Evan, is your question right now. And I think it's a question for a lot of people. What's new is eight years of grievance. What's new is four criminal indictments, 91 felony charges. What's new is a sense that Donald Trump isn't even pretending really to have a kind of an agenda. If you listen to him in 2016, he is talking about policy. Now he's talking about Donald Trump. But I think one of the things that's interesting, if you look at his immigration proposals, which are, and I think we need to spell them out for people that have have not been following everything that he's been saying. I mean, he's saying, for instance, the visas of foreign students who participated in anti-Israel protests would be canceled. He's saying that uh, he would end birthright citizenship. He's talking about reviving this notorious program under Eisenhower that was named for an ethnic slur called Operation Wetback that was about expelling Mexican immigrants from the country. Some of that he talked about in 2016. And the system stopped him or more broadly, the ecosystem around conservative politics stopped him. And Jane, I am really struck by the role that the Heritage Foundation is playing here because this is the you know, this is the infrastructure of conservative ideas. And there was a point. It's true. You know, Heritage was involved in staffing people who were sort of congruent with the ideas of invading Iraq. But that's very different from what you're seeing today, where you have somebody like the president of the Heritage Foundation who is saying, I'm going to read read here a quote that is worth everybody paying attention to. If you haven't read it, he says that the FBI has become a political weapon for the ruling elite. And he said, small ball reforms that increase accountability fail to meet the moment the FBI must be rebuilt from the ground up. That is the Heritage Foundation talking about rebuilding the FBI. How did we get here? (laughs) Well, I mean, what's interesting is we've seen in Congress that uh, Trump's sort of turned uh, the Republican Party into a MAGA movement in Congress, and anyone who gets in the way gets knocked out of the way. What this is showing you is the same things happened to the idea factories and the sort of soft power of uh, hmm. the conservative movement, which are these think tanks, which have were created in around 1980, and um, they were... You know, they're arsenals of ideas, basically, and they are now arsenals of MAGA. Um, And so they've been radicalized. They were always, I mean, honestly, for their time, they were radical before. It's just that Reagan now looks like an old fogey and friendly by comparison. At the time, he was pretty shocking in in what he was offering. But they they have been subsumed into the Trump mantle at this point. You know what I'm struck by is, you know, we're talking about people who are willing to go into this administration who might want to be a part of this. I mean, do they not look around and say, oh, wow, you know, the people who, for instance, engineered family separation, they are permanently stained with that fact. Is that not something that you think stands in their way? Susan, am I being sort of overly optimistic about how much they read the lessons here? There are different lessons. You know, politics is all about incentives, right? And their incentive structure is different than our incentive structure. And uh, I think to your point, Jane, you know, institutions are around who are the people as well. And uh, the people who are around Trump or who are leading these groups now are basically some of the more extreme types from his White House. Remember that 
January 6th and the, the effort to overturn the election, it was a major rupture inside the Trump White House as well. And many people uh, did break with him, uh, we would say belatedly or, you know, incompletely or whatever. But, you know, who is he left with? Who's really surrounding him now? It's people like Stephen Miller, mm. who was with him from the very beginning uh, and, of course, is the, the architect of, in particular, this focus and obsession on immigration. Trump sees that as key to his political standing. And he was always, according to the reporting when he was running, throwing out these unbelievably radical ideas. So, for example, ending birth rate citizenship, yeah. you mentioned, that was a kind of like, you High know, the sky. golden goal for them, you know, but they didn't have any realistic means to make it happen. Uh, now you've got Miller here. It, Trump himself was really, seemed to be around like personal punishment. He was like saying things like, you know, can't we like, you know, have build moats and, you know, put alligators in them to eat up the, you know, the illegal migrants and crazy stuff like ah, this. Yes, the so, alligator prospect. Exactly. But there's <laughs> other radical types. Razor wire on top. Right. Like yeah. on the Justice Department, again, it's the inclination was already there. He, he was always, there's a, actually a very long list of people that Trump publicly demanded be prosecuted even when he was in office and, and privately. Again, how did it happen? Well, who is one of the key people who's remained in his world who's promoting these ideas for how to make the unitary executive even more empowered? One of them is Jeffrey Clark, who was yeah. essentially the inside the Justice Department coup plotter. In fact, he's one of the co-defendants in the George case. He's also uh, one of the ideologues behind let's uh, use the Insurrection Act, for example. And, Jeffrey and, Clark and, was an obscure Justice Department official who basically raised his hand and said, well, these other people aren't helping you. I volunteer to help you overturn the election. But you see, it's because he's been prosecuted mm -hmm. that um, this is to explain why the, the Heritage Foundation is calling the FBI right. to be to be Yes, that is the answer. The that reason is, is because he considers himself a political prisoner, which right. is actually the word they've used to describe all the prosecuted insurrectionists. They've adopted um, that and, language. And what they're basically saying is that the FBI, because it prosecuted the insurrectionists, is... At, is the enemy of the people. And so they're going to take it apart. That's that's basically what they're saying here. As we sort of bring this around to to, to the question of what happens now, I, I have to tell you something, and this I'd be curious how you gauge this, guys, in Washington. You know, I remember during the Trump uh, campaign that one of the questions among Republicans was, would you go into a, a Trump administration? And there was a sort of, there were two schools of thought. One was, no, that is a dishonor and you should not uh, facilitate and serve this man. Another view was, well, maybe if I go in, I could bring some normalcy. I can try to prevent him from doing the worst possible things. I remember having a conversation with a guy who said, well, you know, the question is, is he Mussolini or is he worse? And if he's Mussolini, is he early Mussolini or late Mussolini? I mean, it was this kind of incredible, fine-grained, frankly, I think pretty cynical. Uh, and he ended up going in and he served in the Department of Defense. Knowing everything we know now, do you tell people, oh, go in and you'll stop him from doing the worst? Or do you say, don't go in, all you're doing is being a handmaiden? I, I, I don't know. It's worth pointing out that the courts, for whatever you want to say about the Supreme Court at this point, um, one thing you can say in its favor is it did not serve uh, Donald Trump That's in the final point. days. It yeah. stopped a couple things, and it even and 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 since then it has as well with this Moore v. Harper case, which which would have given um, a sort of undue powers um, to the kinds of 
schemes he's talking about. Um, it has occurred to me, however, I mean, the courts are key, I think. Hmm. Um, you know, the Democrats, some of the Democrats have talked about packing the courts and enlarging the Supreme Court. I think that's a very dangerous yeah. idea to put into so circulation Biden, the at, the, at this that. point, if you think about what it could be like in Trump's hands. Yeah, no, that's that's a non-starter for a variety of reasons, uh, and that's probably a good thing. Um, Evan, I think your question is one of the essential questions, actually, about Donald Trump. And I changed my mind uh, hmm. a little bit about this in the course of working on the divider. And I think, you know, we tend to focus understandably on the enablers. But actually, what I came away thinking is the constraints on Trump were real, as imperfect as many of those were who ultimately ended up uh, obstructing him or stopping him from doing some of the most extreme or illegal or unconstitutional things. Uh, you know, of course, that's going to be the raw material because they're the people who are willing to serve Trump in the first place. That's a limited circle of people. So is it better for the United States that there was a Mike Pence, a Bill Barr, mm. uh, a, a Mark Esper? These are flawed vehicles. Uh, and I don't think that, you know, an act of resistance washes away the rest of their record. The record suggests that, you know, so many people were very, this is Washington, right? They're opportunistic, they're ambitious, they use Trump for their own policy goals. Uh, but it's still in the end, I would say clearly in the in the sort of cost benefit analysis here, the country benefited in the end by having individuals for whom when Trump crossed a line, it might not be your line or my line or Jane's line, but when Trump crossed that line, whatever it was, that they were there to resist. And there you, are people Evan? who wouldn't. <laughs> I mean, Evan, it's, uh, Evan, what would you do? Would you go in or would you would well, you? Well, for me, it's an easy one. The answer is a big flaming no. no right. But I think... In some ways, if you take Mike Pence, yes, eventually in the final hour, he stood up and said no. But one could argue that Donald Trump would never have gotten there without all of the work that Mike Pence did along the way and and the you know, lending him Good credibility point. among evangelicals. Right. About, Good point. And I think to your point, Susan, you know, this is Washington. Well, I don't consider that a static fact that Washington necessarily has to always kind of go along with it. I think in a way there is a better Washington. There's a worse Washington. And part of the process of reckoning with Trump's legacy is to say – Actually, that the culture of, well, I'm a Republican, so I'm going to go in, that was, in the end, a, a real discredit to the party and has ultimately led to its unraveling. But at a right. certain and point, now there, frankly, there aren't. <laughs> the truth is, this is a very 2017 conversation that we're having. <laughs> in my view, those people who would have even felt torn are largely gone from the party or gone from Washington or, you know, they're purged from Congress there. It is a different party today. And I don't even, it's a sign of its debasement <laughs> that I'm not even sure that that debate, that it did occur here in Washington. And we all heard people, you know, participating in it. I think there would be much less of that uh, if Trump were to, you I mean, know, again, win well, re-election. This is what Project 25 is all about. Yeah. It's to make sure that there are, is an endless stream of complete loyalists who will help take down the guardrails. That's the whole idea. That's of this. right. And so that's, that's what they've learned. They've learned there were some things that totally put the right. brakes on us. Let's just cut the brakes. So in the end, 
the only people who can ultimately stop this from happening are voters. the voters. <laughs> they are the voters. They are dear listeners. Um, well, I, this is uh, a heavy-duty stuff. I'm glad we did it. And uh, I think you, once you see what it is they're thinking about doing in 2025 and beyond, you can't unsee it. And I'm grateful to both of you guys for helping us parse our way through it. Thank you, Susan, and thank you, Jane. Great to be with you guys. Oh as my always. goodness, it's going to be a long 2024. <laughs> <laughs> this has been the political scene from the New Yorker. I'm Evan Osnos. We had production assistance today from Alex D'Elia, Dan Richards, and Gianna Palmer. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer. Our theme music is by Allison Layton Brown. We'll be back in two weeks, and thank you very much for listening. Make sure to follow The Political Scene wherever you get your podcasts to hear more from Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos every Friday. The Political Scene also features interviews about the best political reporting that The New Yorker has to offer by senior editor Tyler Foggett on Wednesdays and editor-in-chief David Remnick on Mondays.